This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice. Whatever's been going on catching up. Yes. Think of all the statins you could get people for that cause. I don't know about that either. It's a hot take for sure. I have no idea if it's a hot take. It's, it's, I just see all these people. There's, there's this whole, yeah, you see, you were telling me about the one case that you saw that was, that was terrible. It is terrible. Like, yeah, it was crazy. So everyone listening, I don't know when we'll, this will cut in, we'll see, <laughs> but this is alert and disoriented. So I've reunited with Megan, Nick, and Dr. Abrams. We're at my house for the first time. We're sitting at the table, a couple cocktails deep, and we're currently drinking my rendition of an old fashioned, some Blanton's bourbon. We're just here to talk medicine with each other and catch up. I asked everyone to prepare a little bit of something just so we had something to talk about, but we'll see where it goes. I have some stories I want to share from my month and a half of being a resident. I know Megan's going to talk about procalcitonin. Nick's going to talk about, I don't even remember, hypertension. (laughs) And Dr. Abrams, we didn't kind of tell him anything because he's been doing this for 30 plus years. So he should be able to show up and talk about anything. But he's a hater of GDM. He's ready to argue, I can tell. Oh my God. (laughs) Um, So yeah, it's a Friday night. We're talking about medicine. I don't know if that's concerning, encouraging. We're having fun. Ultimately, Kevin's goal is to open a cocktail bar. And I can say with full confidence that you should all go to this cocktail bar because everything he's made tonight has been absolutely delicious. And we're drinking responsibly, of course. I just want our our listeners to know we're drinking within reason. (laughs) And I'll be taking public transportation home tonight. (laughs) I don't know. Does anyone feel strongly about starting it off? What have you been doing since we've last been together? What's new? I guess I'll go. I, I've, I've officially decided that I'll be applying into internal medicine. It was a little yes. bit up in the air, but now very excited about that. And just I've been enjoying rotation, sub-internship. Fourth year of med school has been great. And yeah, just lots of learning. It's been really fun. Yeah. Yeah, same for me. I did my emergency medicine rotation and then my IM sub-I. So also officially 100% decided on internal medicine. It was a lot of fun doing the sub-I. I think that uh, the transition from like third year to fourth year and just really realizing how much you've learned and seeing the amount of responsibility they give you was a lot of fun and also very stressful at times. But yeah, the past two weeks, I've kind of been doing some podcast stuff and relaxing at home a little bit. So it's been it's been a nice break and it's given me the time to do some research. So I will be talking about the jury's still out on that one, but I'll let you guys know but what I'm thinking so far. A fun episode coming out that Megan's kind of spearheading is a clerkship review series type project and she created a really good comprehensive talk on hypercalcemia so stay tuned for that and her time off is kind of time off but she's made up her own elective with dr abrams (laughs) (laughs) hope rush isn't listening (laughs) Um, it's been a wonderful use of my time i made the hypercalcemia episode like kevin said so that'll be the start of the clerkship review series that we're starting it's kind of geared towards tackling topics and the clerkship curriculum that students seem to struggle with. So we're starting with internal medicine stuff. We have another episode that's going to be coming out on hyponatremia, which I'm working with another student on. And then hopefully we're going to expand to some of the other clerkships like PEDS and OB. So a new project, but we're really excited about it. And maybe we'll move away from electrolytes too. Yeah, (laughs) there will be other things discussed besides electrolytes. So I guess I got to say that I also have decided that internal medicine is right. <laughs> so finally, after all these years, I guess I finally made up my mind and I'm going to stay in internal medicine. Um, How long has it been now? I don't even know. I can't count that. I think you said you're like a PGY. I'm a PGY 40, I think. <laughs> but, but the last 
couple of months have been, have been have actually been great. I've I, I've actually had my own milestone in the last couple of months. Oh, yeah. And I have I, I had the great honor of doing the University of Chicago Clinical Medical Ethics Fellowship, oh. which I completed completed just a couple months ago. So that was a really, really great opportunity for me. And since I've been done, I've you know, it's funny, I, I they quickly made me the chair of the ethics committee. <laughs> Very strange because I had no, I called up the person in charge and said, you know, I did this. I'm sort of interested in it. Is there anything I can do? He said, well, how'd you like to be the chair of the ethics committee? <laughs> so that's it. So I'm doing that now. Congratulations. But yeah, I'm, awesome. uh, amazing. I'm back on service now, which is kind of nice because usually I had been on service every July. Oh. This is one of the few times I've, I've been on service in, in, in August. And so that's been a it's been it's been a good thing, and it's 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 getting me back into to thinking about some of these things. And, I, and I'm listening to hear all about procalcitonin because <laughs> I have to order one sometime. Uh, sometime. I feel like there's a lot of pressure on me. Have you been consulted yet as an ethicist? I actually had one. You know, it's funny. I've been on two. I, when you're on ethics consults, you're on a lot, but you don't get a lot of calls. <laughs> but I have had a couple of calls. Okay. And so far, I've been able to feel the calls that uh, that I've gotten. All right. So it is kind of neat. It's a, it's, awesome. it's, a, it's a different phase. The other thing that I'm excited about is that starting in September, I signed up for this course. It's run out of Oxford. I mean, the real Oxford wow. University. And it's a medical history course. Oh, it's an online they made that for you. An online <laughs> medical history course. So that starts in a couple of weeks. Wow. I can't wait to hear more. That's exciting. Right up your alley. Dr. Abrams got me this book when I graduated. And correct me, but it's from the 1930s. <laughs> I think it's 40s. 1940s, and it's the a dying like diagnostic stories, and it's incredible. I the one that I remember most right now is like the story of gout and how they wrote about gout back then is insane. It's like we don't blink an eye at it now. It's like toss allopurinol at them, and back then it was like a whole thing. There was probably a specialty of gout doctors. <laughs> But it's been so cool to like dive into the history of medicine and just hear like old thinking and how thinking has changed. How do you think as an ethicist, do you think through a dilemma in relation to like how you would see, think about a patient presentation? So you're asking a tough question. So what, so what do you mean by like that? How do you dissect the dilemma posed in an ethical situation? And so, so the answer is, is that you know, if you think about clinical medical ethics, you think about essentially it's a it's a pillar it's a pillar field, mm -hmm. and so there's four pillars of medical ethics. One is autonomy, right? And yeah. so, and we're faced with that so many times. I mean, so much of this is about allowing patients to make decisions. There's beneficence, right? Or if I pronounce it right. I think it's right, which is which is doing good. There's sense which is you know about harm, and and the more interesting part of for me of medical ethics is the justice piece, which is mm. which is bigger, which which sort of is bigger than everything, mm -hmm. and that is, and and we were talking a little bit about a case beforehand, and that is, is, we do have some responsibility to. To society as a whole when we make medical decisions I think and so how does that fit into everything and particularly 
in unique situations, which we talk about, how does justice really intersect with all of that? Oh. Mm -hmm. That's a deep thought. I'm going to have to yeah. take a sip. <laughs> I think we're all going to have to take a sip to that one. Okay. A lot to think about. Nick, you want to tell us about hypertension yeah. or what? Let's do it. Yeah. So <laughs> I will say that one of my learning tools lately has been lots of like medical grand rounds on YouTube. Ooh. So like in addition to podcasts, I think so cool now that like grand rounds from various universities are published uh, as YouTube videos. And so you can just watch them. And so I think that I, you know, try to learn like clinically relevant things from lots of these grand rounds on YouTube. And so, so one of the more interesting things I learned, this was actually, I think it was from Emory's grand rounds, if I can, but I'm not exactly sure, but it's really just on, on a hypertension. So I'll give you guys a case and we can kind of discuss it. But so let's say, let's say Kevin, you're a, you're an intern on call. Okay. And you have a patient who's got a blood pressure 190 over 110. Okay. Okay. Let's say this patient is a male, he's in his 70s, and he's admitted for some diverticulitis. Okay? okay. He's, aside from some abdominal pain, he's otherwise asymptomatic. He's got a history of hypertension. And let's say his home medication is like amlodipine, takes like 10 milligrams. Okay. And you're consulted overnight for a 190 over 110 blood pressure. Who's consulting me for um, blood pressure? You mean I'm just getting paid? So you're getting paid from okay. a nurse. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you have this blood pressure. It's not like the usual page, which is the patient's blood pressure is 140 over 80. What do you <laughs> want to do? <laughs> yeah. So you have some like some okay. options here. What's your approach to this? So I'm 190 over 110. Well, and 190 over 110. The patient has some abdominal pain that's that's kind of inconsistent yeah. uh, attributed to their diverticulitis otherwise they're asymptomatic and they take amlodipine at home so they have no so i would clarify so first i would call back whoever paged me and i'm gonna ask what kind of symptoms do they have do they have headache any vision changes any okay. sequelae of being hypertensive so let's say in terms of their labs in terms of their symptoms there's no symptoms they have no lab evidence of end organ damage or okay anything like that. are they in 10 out of 10 pain to their diverticulitis right now no they're not this okay. is just a normal or I would so say middle of the night yes hypertensive episode a severely elevated blood pressure okay yes so i'm gonna ask them to recheck it okay and let's say it's the same okay, okay. <laughs> then i'm gonna wait to be honest okay and i feel any acute hypertensive intervention i'm not sure it has there's been proven any benefit to it in the hospital setting okay and so let's say that this patient is about ready to be discharged let's say that okay oh okay. let's say that their blood pressures have been 130s to 180s in the hospital okay their course has been relatively uncomplicated let's say that they fi they finished their antibiotic course for acute diverticulitis and now let's say you're ready to discharge them let's say they started lisinopril for hypertension in the hospital they continue them on their amlodipine and now it's time to discharge them on a, an antihypertensive regimen home okay um, nick you're giving me a stomach ache <laughs> I just want to tell you that right now. Uh, and you guys are free to, to, to pitch in here. Oh, no, so. I want to hear what Kevin says. <laughs> so let's say, how do you, so what do you, what do you send them home on? And, and maybe their P, in their PCP visits, they've been. So they're on amlodipine 10. You start them on an ACE. Yeah, let's say they've and they're still riding high. Yeah, they've been in the 130s to 180s. Okay, so kind of just in, in their inpatient hospital. So, so they've been hypertensive. Okay, let's say they've been here for a week. I don't know if this is evidence-based or not, but this is alert and disoriented, so I have the space to <laughs> yeah, just talk yeah, freely. Yeah, yeah, let's hear it. So my, this is, I mean, this is real this world. happens all the time. Yeah, right? my, it's like, 
Yeah. So, so what do you, what do you do? My real world is I'm going to have this, ask this patient to follow up with their primary care provider for closer blood pressure monitoring and tailoring of their antihypertensive regimen. I'm not going to make any other acute changes. Okay. If they had, are you going to keep them on the same, are you going to keep them on their lisinopril or are you going to discontinue that? It depends on like their underlying medical conditions. I think if they have reasons to be on lisinopril, sure. I'm well, curious. say the reason they were starting on it was for hypertension. Okay, I'm curious as to why amlodipine was first. I know it is yeah. like a first-line choice. Mm-hmm. I feel like based on the base rate of disease, people are likely to be diabetic or have some kind of mm-hmm. kidney disease that gets them started on an ACE first. Mm-hmm. So I'd have to think about that a little more. But I don't know. I'm feeling okay about the combination of an ACE and a calcium channel blocker. Okay. The fact that they're 130s to 180s, in the hospital setting doesn't alarm me that much. Okay, let, yeah, and let's say in, they've been normotensive outpatient. Yeah, so I'm chart review. Yeah, through yeah. chart, I'm gonna believe that. Then. Okay. That's gonna weigh much more heavily into my decision-making than their, hyper, their blood pressure in the hospital setting. Okay, so your final decision is that you're gonna... I'm gonna continue the ACE and the... The ACE that they started in the hospital? Yeah, I'm a, so, we're, so I'm operating under the impression that he was 190s, 110, mm-hmm. whatever sustained. So he needed to yes. have that second yes. antihypertensive yeah. started. And then, then he improved to the 130s to 80s, but in the outpatient setting has been mm-hmm. less hypertensive. So will he return to being less hypertensive? I don't know. But right. so, can, can I say yeah, something? Yeah, yeah, please, please, please yeah. someone jump in. <laughs> then, then I'll go over some of the, the evidence so that I learned. I'm gonna tell you this, hypertension is not an inpatient illness for most people. Okay. So, so hypertension as we think of it, which is essential hypertension, is a, it, it, it's a outpatient problem. I think there's actually evidence now, like doesn't, the exact evidence doesn't come to my mind, that when you actually treat these people in the hospital, they actually do worse. Yeah. They actually do worse when you send them home. And so the wrong answer is to start piling medications on them. That's, that's issue number one. Now, issue number two, and I'll say this, is the only thing that really saves people from what we do is non-compliance. <laughs> so I learned that from one of my mentors a long time ago. <laughs> and so piling medicines onto people while they're in the hospital yeah. in an environment that is nothing like what their, what their home life is like is, is fraught with unbelievable danger. I'll stop there. Megan, it's your turn. Yeah, I, just, I feel like 10's not the max dose of amlodipine. I'm not mistaken, so I don't know. It seems interesting to like add on another medication in terms of just Ooh, like, that, you know, I feel like as that, opposed to that's like a changing the medication that they're already on. So okay. I feel like my first, I don't know, always the first thing I'm thinking is like, is there a way we can increase what they're already taking instead of adding something that like, you know, you always run the risk of side effects with adding medications. So I got to counter that. I, yeah. think. I, I can't wait to disagree with you on this. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> I have learned, I'm not sure where that it's better to add a another agent versus up titrating the existing because with up titrating there's a minimal improvement a minimal dose related improvement but there is a dose related side effect increase okay. well now you're talking you guys are talking about treating medication as an outpatient <laughs> yeah we are treating yeah. medication yeah, as yeah, an we outpatient. Go back to the inpatient we're going right. back to the inpatient go setting back. yes you're right when people have a certain level of blood pressure one won't work but again it, it, all bets are off, except that Nick's going to probably try and tell us something in a minute. Tell us, Nick. <laughs> all right. So um, I'm glad that this discussion generated some thought here. I'll say that the maybe unsurprisingly, the attending of 30 years has 
probably gotten him more right in this situation. <laughs> so I will not be too long-winded, but there is some evidence now in terms of inpatient outcomes and outpatient outcomes yes. for treating hypertension. And so I'll go over just so... The study that is most interesting, I think, is in the JAMA Internal Medicine 2020. So they basically took a cohort of patients. They took 23,000 hospitalized patients. That's it? That's it. Just that. From 10 Cleveland Clinic hospitals. And they, of these 23,000 patients, 18,000 of them had at least one elevated blood pressure of greater than 140 during their hospitalization. And the caveat is that these are non-cardiac related patients. Okay. So cardiac is kind of a different thing in which sometimes we start antihypertensives for more hemodynamic purposes than just lowering blood pressure. Sure. So of these 18,000 patients that had this one elevated blood pressure reading, about 6,000 of them received treatment, which was defined as an IV blood pressure medication or a new oral agent that wasn't their outpatient medication. And they found that if you decided to either do an IV blood pressure medication, so you define parameters, let's say you give hydralazine if the blood pressure gets above 180, but they're asymptomatic, or just adding on new agents when it's just for hypertension in the absence of any symptoms. In the matched analysis, treated patients had significantly higher rates of AKI, myocardial infarction, and the composite outcome of of, uh, some of all these outcomes. So they actually found that at no individual blood pressure were treated patients uh, have had better outcomes in, in any sense of the parameters that they looked at. So I thought that this was like, I mean, when you have a cohort of this many patients, of course, it's it's really convincing that, of course, you have to look at it individually. But I thought that that was really interesting. And then in terms of the outpatient, so 18,000 patients, the same 18,000 patients with an elevated blood pressure of the 6,000 that were treated about 30% of those were discharged on an intensified regimen that was more intense than their prior regimen coming into the hospitalization. And post-discharge outcomes included no change in MI and stroke after 30 days. And then they also looked at blood pressure control in up to one year. And they found that in terms of MI and stroke, there was no difference. And then actually there was no difference in their blood pressure at one year, Um, even though they had added on these agents or intensified their current regimen. So I thought that this was because of just like such a big cohort of patients, just another reminder that we don't always have to feel the burden of doing more. And in the outpatient setting, we can kind of look at the nuances when they're not acutely ill in terms of starting antihypertensive regimen. So obviously there are nuances in this, like I said, but I think that this was this kind of, at least in my future, when I have to discharge patients, I feel like kind of takes that burden off of the fact that if I see a high blood pressure, I don't have to feel bad about not adding on another medication or not, because not only are outcomes unchanged, but a lot of times when we treat these patients, if we uptitrate their medications, they, there's worse outcomes sometimes with, hy- with hypotension, with hyperkalemia. So just thought that, that was interesting that I learned and also really clinically relevant, so. That resonates so deeply. I feel like every patient that I am seeing on general medicine has some kind of hypertensive problem, even in the inpatient setting where maybe they don't have a diagnosis of hypertension, but I'm getting paged that they're hypertensive and being almost like, it seems like I'm being expected to have to do something about it. Yeah. But I feel like this falls into a thing we do for no reason. category. exactly. So this is one of my major pet peeves and it's a hospital pet peeve that I have. And that is the patient who is admitted with hypertensive urgency. Okay. And so my question always is, is what in the world is hypertensive urgency? Uh. <laughs> so I know what hypertensive emergency is, right? That's 
hypertension with some sort of end organ damage. And that's an emergency, right? So at least my mind says you admit those people to ICUs. You need to carefully reduce their blood pressure. But so many times I see people admitted with this diagnosis of hypertensive urgency. And at least in my own mind, it's not an inpatient problem. I don't, and sometimes, remember, sometimes their blood pressure is, their systolic pressure is 200. And it's like, who cares? Yeah. Sorry. It's, it's yeah. not, it is not something that should be managed as an inpatient in my mind. And, and the right answer is, in my mind, is to not do too much to these people because your chance of harming them is really high. And that gets back yeah. to my, that gets back to my, the non-compliance thing. Thank God most of these people don't take the medicines, we discharge them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, there it is. That was good, Nick. Thank you. Yeah. I just, oh. it's something that, you know, you see every day, probably like, no, oh, you yeah, see it all the time. Day. I mean, yeah. So. And certainly as whether as an intern yeah, or as a sub intern or a medical student, you're faced with all the time. And it's always, I mean, doing something always seems like it's, it's something we have to do, right? Not doing something. It's easy to do something. It's a lot harder not to do something. Mm -hmm. I think the hospital can be a really tough place to be a patient. Yeah. I feel like we see that, especially like in an academic institution where, you know, you want to educate the people that are there to learn. And so I'm like pre pre rounding before the interns, you know, rounding on them. And then the whole team comes by to see them. And there's like constantly their IV alarm beeping and they're probably in pain and they're in the hospital. And so, yeah, I think that there's a lot of other things that you have to consider as to like why their blood pressure can be elevated while they're <laughs> inpatient and make sure that especially pain is like a huge driver of blood pressure. So. I think the first thing you want to do for any patient that's you know there and some patients won't really complain about pain they're like very stoic and like to pretend like you know they're doing okay but yeah there's a lot of reasons that blood pressure can be elevated and opposed to just like essential hypertension so wow. hospital especially yeah. but i've been changing all my morning labs to 6 a.m instead of 4 a.m and i'm trying to see the difference in my patient's interactions do they actually draw them at 4 a.m. though? I feel like I was told to put them in at 4, but they don't actually draw them. <laughs> I've learned it depends on the service. Okay. So when I was on my first service, leukemia lymphoma service, it was within, they were resulting between 4 and 5 a.m. every morning. Oh, really? Now in general med, I have them being drawn at 6 a.m. They're mostly resulting between like 7.30, 8.30. Okay. On the few that have been like 4 a.m., they're still resulting kind of later, so they're not actually drawing in that. Yeah, I think that's another important point, too. I feel like for a while I thought that, like, you know, they have an IV and you can just draw blood from the yeah. IV. But, like, these patients have to be poked every single morning to get the lab. So you're not drawing something that's, like, actually going to change management or you're not trending something, then consider doing, like, labs every other day or really make sure that what you're drawing actually has, like, an effect on the management that you're doing. So. I had a patient when I was rounding on her in the morning. She expressed frustration that she said she's really cranky that morning. I said, you know, what's going on? She said they came in at 3 a.m. to weigh me. That was it. Uh, <laughs> I was like, wow, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I probably would be frustrated yeah. too there. <laughs> so, yeah. It's a good reminder. You want to teach us about ProCal? Yeah. I mean, I feel like a good place to start would be, are you ordering ProCal? What do you guys think about ProCal? Yeah. What's kind of, what are we feeling about it? So, well, I know ProCal is a lab result that I see often. As a fourth year medical student, to be honest, I don't really know how to interpret, all then maybe it suggests a bacterial infection, okay. and maybe it's a way to differentiate a 
potential sepsis situation from not, although I don't hear it mentioned often in terms of like interpreting or making clinical decisions, at least in my experience so far, but I do see it ordered often. So interested to hear more about it. Yeah, I'm also interested. I've actually rarely seen it. And in the settings I've seen it, it seems to be in respiratory disease predominantly. And in the cases it's elevated, it doesn't change my thinking at all. I'm actually not even sure how we interpret it for decision-making. But I, I did have the same like bias as Nick, at least in that my understanding of it was that if it was elevated, it does suggest more of a bacterial process versus a viral or non-infectious process. I'm just so lucky I have my phone right here. <laughs> Are you cheating? Of course I'm cheating. I'm looking at the positive likelihood ratio of a pro of a of a procalcitonin 1.41. <laughs> oh, that's a needle ticker. <laughs> so I'm so excited. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm here to tell you guys, yeah, the jury is definitely still out on procalcitonin. I think there is a time and a place for it, but yeah, it's a lab that I think a lot of people are ordering. It's kind of like the hot new inflammatory marker and I think important just to understand exactly, you know, why it's drawn, what it's used for, and then how we can use these values to kind of help us make clinical decisions about our patients. So just like starting off, like what is procalcitonin? So it's a precursor of calcitonin, which we know calcitonin is something that's like secreted by the thyroid, the C cells of the thyroid specifically, going back to step one, but also it's made by inflammatory cells as well. So that's a pathway that I think I never learned of. I don't know if you guys have ever learned of it, but basically the thought is for like the inflammatory pathway, it's activated by a bacterial surface or it can be endotoxin related. So if you have like bacteremia, something like E. coli in your blood, and it's just kind of going around touching tissue, your tissue will respond by releasing procalcitonin or macrophages that ingest bacteria or like endotoxin will then produce inflammatory cytokines and that will stimulate the production of procalcitonin. And the thought is that viruses produce interferon gamma, which then locks the transcription of procalcitonin. And so theoretically, it's supposed to be really helpful in bacterial infections because it should stimulate procalcitonin and then viral infections, it should suppress it. And so that's kind of the idea is that, yeah, it should help us differentiate between something that's bacterial versus something that's viral. Whether or not this plays out in real life is, you know, there's a lot of nuances between it. A couple caveats, I think, just to kind of start off. So in patients with like CKD and ESRD, they have in impaired clearance. And so we'll see this, like, I feel like even issues with like troponin and stuff, they always are like, oh, well, is this patient like an ESRD patient? How reliable is this like troponin yeah. and whether or not this patient actually has like some sort of myocardial injury? And so the idea that, yeah, if you're not clearing it, it can build up more. And so that can cause your procal to be elevated, even if there's not like an acute bacterial infection going on. Because in all of us, we have like a low level of it kind of circulating, like it's a precursor to calcitonin, but it should be, you know, more significantly elevated if there is some sort of like infectious inflammatory process. And then, like I said, like the cytokine storm from macrophages is something that should theoretically stimulate mac or stimulate production of procal. So like most often this is from a bacterial source, but as we've seen with COVID especially, like there is this whole kind of cytokine storm you know, effect of COVID. And so it makes it a little bit more difficult to differentiate, you know, this like viral etiology, which typically we're like, okay, well, it should produce interferon gamma. Like we shouldn't get an elevated procal, but you have some virus that's then causing, causing a cytokine storm. It does make the picture like a little tricky. A lot of the immunologics and like the GCF stimulating factors. So anything that's going to cause your immune system to kind of ramp up, you know, its own like intrinsic production of things can 
affect Pro-Cal because this is something that like your immune cells are making on their own. Another interesting thing, so it's made in the thyroid, so like medullary thyroid cancer, if you see a really, really high Pro-Cal and you're not that concerned about infection, you can consider like medullary thyroid cancer as an etiology for it. It typically causes it to be pretty high. And then other things, so massive tissue necrosis and then any sort of like end organ damage causing organ necrosis. It's actually kind of interesting. So it's thought to be related to like the release of mitochondrial DNA, which your body just like interprets as some sort of like bacterial invasion. So it'll release Pro-Cal thinking that it's like a bacterial invasion when really it's just like your own cells breaking down. And then anything like cardiogenic shock or decreased organ perfusion can cause Pro-Cal to be elevated, even though it's not from like a bacterial source. So a couple times when it is useful, so I think we've all kind of heard about like the respiratory infections. So that's typically, that's like a big kind of population where it was studied. And so the question always becomes, it's like those patients that come in, like obviously if they're really sick, they're hypotensive, they're febrile, you like see all these infiltrates on chest x-ray, like you're pretty concerned that this patient's like septic from some sort of pulmonary source. You're probably gonna store an start antibiotics on them anyways. And the same goes for like kind of this like young healthy person that's like doesn't have a fever and is like maybe had a cough for a couple days and you're really not concerned. Like again, you're probably not gonna send a Procal on them because for both those patients, either you're like very convinced it's bacterial, you're just gonna start antibiotics anyway, or you're like so convinced it's not bacterial that you're not gonna start them on antibiotics regardless. So for those populations, it's not really as helpful because you kind of have your mind made up and it's like isn't to suggest that this should be used like in favor of like your clinical gestalt that is going to kind of trump everything especially you know you have all this experience you shouldn't just like rely on a single lab value to replace all of that but this kind of goes for like those indeterminate patients where they're like maybe a little bit sick you know have a little fever and you're not really sure is this like a viral pneumonia is this a community acquired pneumonia that's like from a bacterial source bronchitis even we know it's like usually viral sometimes it can be bacterial and then the question becomes like is this something that the patient needs antibiotics for or can they just be managed supportively and we can send them home and so something i learned that was pretty interesting so profile it'll usually rise within like two to four hours of an acute infection acute infection by six hours, it'll be like significantly elevated and it peaks anywhere from like six to 24 hours. So if you have a patient that just comes in and you get two procalcitonin separated by six hours, this is like more relevant for emergency medicine, but if you get them separated by six hours and they're both like within this negative range, um, which kind of depends on like the lab that you have at your institution and what they consider those negative ranges to be. You can have like a 96% negative predictive value. This is actually not a bacterial infection, which I think is really I don't know, important if, negative. if it's negative. And so, yeah, like the positive results, I think kind of are a little bit more difficult to interpret. I don't know. It, yeah. I mean, this like kind of indeterminate range of patients where you're really not sure what to do is like you're already at a really tough spot because it could kind of go either way. And so I think that's when like trending the Procals can be really helpful too. Like, okay, you decide to start them on antibiotics and then you follow up the Procal. And if their Procal is decreasing, you can be kind of reassured that what you're doing is at least like targeting the infection. Again, I mean, maybe this is just like the natural course of the disease and it's just like decreasing because it's decreasing. And obviously we're never going to be completely sure. But yeah, for those patients, I think that you're really not sure they're being admitted. Trending the Procal, I think is really reasonable. And even if you are pretty sure it's bacterial, but you want to make sure you're treating them with like the right antibiotics because you're not entirely sure of the source, you can trend it. And if it's decreasing, you know, kind of significantly and like within a good range, then you can be reassured that whatever antibiotics you've chosen to give to them are helpful. And, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, if you're trending it, it's not going down, you're giving them antibiotics, you want to kind of rethink exactly what you're doing with that. Make sure like, A, you do think this is bacterial and B, whatever you're treating them bacterial wise is covering what you think the pathogen might be. One population that has been really helpful in it is bacterial meningitis versus viral meningitis. I mean, for these patients, you're like getting a lumbar puncture anyways, and I think eventually you're gonna figure out um, what, the, what the actual cause is. But, you know, sometimes that can take like a little long to come back and maybe there's like an issue with getting the LP, they're anticoagulated, what, whatnot. So yeah, drawing the Procal can be helpful in determining 
whether or not you think this is like a bacterial versus viral meningitis source. Another thing too is fever of unknown origin. So these patients can be especially tricky and a lot of the rheumatologic conditions shouldn't cause the profile to be elevated, like lymphoma as well. So some of the like hematologic oncologic, oncologic causes. So yeah, lymphoma shouldn't be elevated. Like most of the rheumatologic, there is some evidence that vasculitis can cause it to be increased, but otherwise it shouldn't be elevated. So if you have a patient with fever of unknown origin and you check a profile because you're just not entirely sure what direction to turn, you know, you've like looked at the urine, you've looked at the lungs, you drew the blood cultures, they're not growing anything yet. I think checking a procal can be helpful because it's significantly elevated or even like, I don't know, kind of in that moderate range and you don't know exactly what you're treating. I think that you know, the decisions kind of being made is whether to not start antibiotics. That can be kind of helpful in terms of like the tipping point. And then lastly, in like septic patients, actually seeing high ha- how high the procal gets can be used as like a prognostic factor. So again, it depends on the exact range that your lab uses as to like what it considers the actual cutoff. But what I was looking at was like a value of six in patients that are like, you know, in the ICU for septic shock, if it's like above six, their mortality is so much higher than if it's below six. And so, yeah, prognostically, I think it's helpful just in terms of like how aggressive you actually Mm -hmm. want to be with these patients. So obviously a lot of arguments against it. So yeah, like I said, like using your actual like clinical reasoning to determine like, is this patient sick, not sick? You shouldn't let just a single lab value trump that. And then in a lot of times it like kind of going along that same reasoning, it doesn't change practice. Like they looked at studies to see what people are actually doing based on the propel and like Usually a lot of these times the patient, or providers are going to do what they were going to do like before they got the procal. Like they're giving antibiotics to the same patients. They're not giving antibiotics to the same patients just because that like, I don't know, the actual population I think would benefit from it is pretty small. And then they also look to like all-cause all mortality. So it's like, okay, they've made decisions as to like stopping antibiotics based on trending the procal. It's like if it's below a certain level, we feel comfortable stopping the antibiotics. And then they followed up later looking at all-cause mortality and they didn't really find a significant difference in patients where they like stopped the antibiotics early based on the procal versus like continued it, you know, just given like the normal treatment duration that they would otherwise use. So all-cause mortality is obviously like a really good metric that we want to look at. We want to make sure that what we're doing with our patients is going to help them. But even in terms of like antibiotic stewardship, like a lot of the side effects you see with antibiotics, that's not necessarily going to affect all-cause mortality. There's a lot of side effects out there that wouldn't reflect with that metric, but still can cause like a lot of side effects with our patients that if we have the chance to not have them on antibiotics when they don't need to be, that would be really helpful. It is kind of expensive. I think it's like double the price of a CRP, which is something that a lot of institutions use to kind of, you know, monitor for inflammation. I think the CRP is like not as helpful in determining like bacterial versus viral versus just like inflammatory for rheumatologic, some sort of malignancy, whereas ProCal actually has like some sort of basis in identifying bacterial versus viral. But yeah, like I said, there there are a lot of caveats to it. A lot of patients too that like they're septic, you know, they're probably gonna have some sort of like kidney damage and then it gets really hard to interpret the procal when you're like trying to trend it. But now this patient has like a creatinine of four from the baseline of so. Yeah, like I said, there's a lot of kind of information out there and it is really hard to determine, you know, what's the right thing to do, what's the wrong thing to do. I think there's a time and a place for it, but ultimately I think there is gonna have to be like a lot more research and I don't know. Right now, I don't think I can make a specific recommendation as to like use it or don't use it. I think that there's specific patients where it's helpful, specific patients where it's not as helpful. But yeah, I think using like your your clinical reasoning is obviously going to trump trump mm-hmm. a lot of this. So that's all I have to say about ProCal. That's it? That's it. Okay. So you go. <laughs> okay. There are two things, Megan. First of all, that was that was amazing. That was think, so comprehensive. Yeah. I finished a drink and a half. <laughs> I got some <laughs> I think there are two things that I took from that, like like big picture, big picture things. I think one of them, first of all, is that there are a lot of things that can cause calcitonin to be elevated outside of. So the specificity level. Yes. Oh, gosh. Outside 
of a a bacterial infection. For example, you said renal disease, you said like malignancies, like a lot of different things. And then the other thing that I took away from it was that it potentially has a role in those like less ill patients who most likely have a viral illness to where you're making that decision, do I give antibiotics to this patient? Like. So you're arguing you in the less sick patients where it's more likely viral, you get a pro-cal, it's negative. In terms of making say, it an antibiotic, antibiotic decision, in yeah, terms yeah. of making a decision as whether you treat this as bacterial. I know there's all kinds of like prognostication and all kinds of stuff like that. He's sweaty. I'm not sweating at all. But so that's what I, I don't know, in my very like, my, my young medical mind, that's kind of what I've taken. I still don't quite know exactly how to interpret it, but. So first of all, that was great. <laughs> no, I'm serious. So that was great. And, and, and probably the most important thing to remember is that we do test for a reason, okay? And I think the biggest danger of whether it's procalcitonin or lactate levels or BMPs or D-dimers is when undifferentiated people who walk in the door to a hospital just get all these tests. Yeah. Okay. So that's that. That really, really is the danger. And and as long as you order a test for a reason, it probably is never the wrong answer. Huh. I, I I would say this in my quick reflection on this, and that is. In some ways, this is, I guess this is the D-dimer of the 2020s. How about Ooh. that? Ooh, you're okay. here. <laughs> so this test appears to be most useful when it's negative, mm -hmm. okay? Just like a D-dimer, just like a BNP, just like a troponin. And so when it's negative, it's really, you guys, I, I already heard all the words come yeah, out. Yeah. So negative is meaningful. Positive is much, much harder to interpret. So this is the snout. Yes, this high is, sensitivity. That's right, and that is what rules something out. That is what it is. And if you look at this, go back to those things. If you look at the sensitivity of this test, it's it's. I'm going to assume without looking, it's fairly high, right? And it, it, the problem is, it's there's is this specificity problem. And so as long as you accept that, it's it's great. The one thing that I really was thinking about so much when you were talking was we've just been through this pandemic. Mm. Yeah. And I just was looking and wondering, boy, this might have actually been a really useful thing for COVID though. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? So there yeah. it is. And so I would want to know, because it really is kind of an ICU sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, we had all sorts of questions with many of these people. And I wonder how this test works in people with COVID huh. because it just seems like that's where it really may, might have been a useful thing. Yeah, so actually there are like a lot of studies that kind of look at it in terms of COVID. And basically the question is whether or not you have like a superimposed bacterial yeah. infection yeah. in addition to COVID. And so that's actually one of the places where it has been really helpful and is being used a lot is to help kind of distinguish because you know their chest x-ray looks terrible, their CT scan of their chest looks terrible. And so especially to something I was listening to was like one of these ICU providers, they're like, okay, well, my options are to like give higher dose steroids because that's something we do for COVID. 
but I don't want to give higher dose steroids if there's some sort of underlying bacterial infection. He's like, this is actually one of the times where I do find it really useful. And he's not even like a big pro-cal person, but this is like one of the few instances where he will use it because he's just like, okay, I want to, you know, use every resource I can to make sure that there's not some sort of underlying bacterial respiratory infection that I'm missing before I'm giving this patient higher dose steroids, which is Uh helpful in COVID. Right, because this all boils down to pretest probability. Exactly. Isn't that really? Yeah. Isn't that really what this is all about? <laughs> yes. And if if you've got pre-test a lot of COVID that, around, yeah. pre-test. The pretest probability is high. <laughs> to pretest, so that test is really useful in that in that instance. Exactly. So yeah, that's one of the populations that they've been looking at it a lot, and I think it is. It's really interesting. So, wow. I think before I take the hot seat, how's everyone feeling? I'm feeling great. <laughs> this is learning a lot. Mm-hmm. I like the back and forth. I feel I'm like having fun. I hope I'm you learning. guys are all having as much fun as we're having here. <laughs> I'm going to take a different approach. All right. And I was trying to think of what I want to share with you guys. And a really great month as part of my first month. And I learned a lot. So I've come up with an exercise <laughs> to kind of put you in my shoes. Oh and I, I think this is good for Dr. Abrams, too. I think it will put him in my shoes. <laughs> so as part of the service I was on, you have to do a week of nights, and you're alone. There's no other residents. You don't have a senior. You don't have a fellow. The room next door does have a hospitalist that you can you know, bounce ideas off of, but ultimately, you are the decision maker. You are covering our team service. And then you're also cross-covering a separate service, patients you otherwise have no idea about. So you're getting distracted while things are happening. So a patient comes to the emergency room. They're 65. They are feeling kind of bad over the past two weeks, just kind of fatigued. They think they're sick. They check a CBC, the white count's 15. They do a differential and there's some blasts that triggers them to order a smear and some time passes and the smear comes back concerning for blasts. So the hematology oncology fellow gets paged that, hey, we might have a new leukemia patient in the ER right now. That's all I'm gonna give you what are you worried about? What are you going to do next? Does this patient need to be admitted emergently? Can this patient wait in the ER? What kind of things need to happen on an urgent basis? For acute leukemia, I feel like the one thing I always think about is like a tumor lysis syndrome. So yeah, just checking all their electrolytes, making sure that all of those look okay. I mean, white count of 15 isn't like high enough where I'd be worried about like a significant burden, I guess, in terms yeah. of tumor lysis syndrome. But yeah, I think it also all comes down to like, I don't know like their social kind of support outside of it, whether or not they have like access access to the outpatient follow-up that they would need. I mean, if this is a leukemia, they're going to need chemo. They're going to need like chemo follow-up. And I feel like I have seen patients get admitted just purely because they don't think they have the resources to like kind of function outside the hospital setting. And I don't know whether or not that's the right thing to do. I think that that kind of goes into a whole separate discussion, but I think that that is something important to take into consideration. And then, yeah, I mean, always looking at like the vitals, the rest of their labs, just how the patient like appears clinically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I that's probably that. where I would start. Nick, yeah. what kind of things are you, say I didn't give you that there's blasts on the smear. What kind of 
other systemic things or sequelae are you going to be looking for in a patient that you're suspecting might be an acute leukemic patient? So any, any obviously, or there's a potential for immunocompromise. So yeah. I'm worried about, is this patient predisposed to having some kind of serious infection? Obviously, like, you know, if I don't know their white blood cell count, yeah. uh, I'm like, and there's a concern for acute leukemia, like, is this patient neutropenic or... I mean, I told you their white count is so, 15, but if... Yeah. You don't know the neutrophil. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I don't know the neutrophil. Like, could this be all. Like, could those all be blasts? Exactly. Could they all be blasts? So I don't know like what this patient, like the level of this patient's immunocompromise is. I'm also thinking about bleeding risks in these patients. Pause. Katie. Um, thank you so much. Cookies. I forgot. I, I can't believe how important <laughs> you guys have been. Yeah. Yeah. There. Yum. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> How can how can I ignore this? Here? Yeah, I try one. Cookie break. Sorry. So yes, while I <laughs> while I, while I devour this cookie, it's like warm. <laughs> yeah, the mouthful. Other cell lines can cause like really s severe disease. So yeah, in terms of anemia, in terms of thrombocytopenia, is patient like at risk for a spontaneous intracranial bleed or something like that? Or of course, it's like hemolysis, like Megan was mentioning. Worried about electrolyte abnormalities in yeah. a patient like this. So yeah, those are hemolysis is very real in hematological emergencies yeah. for sure. So those are kind of things that I would probably be looking for like immediately. Doctor Abrams, you're moonlighting in the ER. <laughs> you are. I used to back in the day. You are now, and <laughs> this this is your patient. Our you're not able to get in touch with the Hemonk fellow because you're in the community. And are you admitting this patient, or they can they go home? So. Again, it depends upon, it, really in my mind, it depends on two things. Number one, it depends on the patient, number one. And it depends upon the information that you have. And the, and this is a place where lab values really are important. Yeah. And specific parts of the lab values are important. So not just I need labs, but there are certain labs that I need. Yeah. And, and actually I skipped another thing. This is a piece where the exam is also really important in someone. Mm -hmm. So, so again, it all boils down to those things. Things that I'm particularly interested in, obviously, that the smear is everything in this yeah, person. Yeah, it really is. Right? So, so it is, as Nick said, and that is, you know, CBC in this case means CBC with diff. Yep. <laughs> and it means sometimes making a call to really ask about the diff and of course if you think blasts in this person this person's differential diagnosis given their age is, is actually fairly constricted yeah. i was going to get into that but yeah it's it, what do you think it, it, it's fairly constricted you know, how constricted it's really constricted yeah, as a matter of fact. It is. <laughs> so you know i guess they could have all but probably not so this yeah. is more likely some form of AML in a 65-year-old. And again, the smear means everything. So I, I do need to know, you know, are there metamylocytes? Are there this? What, what, not, not just the blast, but what comes before the blast in this person? I love it. And Can so I, let's pause there because I think that raises a great point. So he is absolutely right. Base rate of disease in this elderly population is AML. In over 80%, it's going to be AML. All right, so now we're back in our community ER setting. You guys are the attendings, and this is your patient, and you get the smear results, and there's blasts, and you beg the pathologist overnight to. You don't need the pathologist. You need the person in the lab who's looking yeah. at that smear. For <laughs> God's sake, looking at the smear, you say, "Please." What does it look like to you? Because you've seen thousands. Yeah, 
I know there are blasts. What can you tell me about these blasts? What are you guys looking for? What are you freaking out that it could be? I mean, I feel like the one big thing is like APML. You always worry about like DIC with that as like the big kind of well-known complication. What do you see in a smear for APL? What are they? The little... Our rods? Our rods, yes. Our rods. Our rods. Uh, our rods. You our say, are there our rods on this smear? <laughs> are, are there? Are they? Yeah. Are Let's, for this exercise, yeah, there's some our rods. All right. So we're worried about... What are about, we worried about? I mean, big complication, like I said, DIC. Yeah. So, yeah. We want to look for schistocytes. We want to get, like, an LDH. We want to check fibrinogen, a D-dimer, the whole kind of coagulation cascade. Wonderful. Because, yeah, that's the... The right. one that's been drilled into my head in terms of... Listen, I am so that. happy if they see owl rods in this person because <laughs> yeah. I'm like thinking, <laughs> thank God exactly this person that. actually has a chance of surviving because if they don't have owl rods, their prognosis is horrendous. Or that is true. It is improving. I've learned if I was ever to have a malignancy, it would be APML. Would you get vitamin A or something and that helps them for sure? So the mortality is incredibly high in APML in the acute setting. It is a hematologic emergency. Mm-hmm. It has to be identified immediately because they are at risk of severe complications such as DIC. They're still at risk of TLS. Mm-hmm. But it is the most treatable answer, I think, across all malignancies. And you're right. Is it vitamin A? It's a vitamin A derivative atra. Mm-hmm and also arsenic, which seems kind of crazy, crazy. right? But when you're an intern overnight on a leukemia lymphoma service and you get a call that you're getting an admission from a patient coming from an outside hospital or they have a smear and there's owl rods, you're freaking out. (laughs) You are calling your fellow, you are saying, hey, there are owl rods in the smear, (laughs) should I start ATRA? Okay. And the answer 100 times out of 100 is yes. If there are ever owl rods, you start ATRA because the side effects of ATRA are like headache. Mm-hmm. And the benefits of ATRA are like cure of their APM. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good about that. What if they're like actively in DIC? If you they're still at, give it? You, you give the ATRA 100%. Yeah. What do you know about DC? What, DIC? What is like the laboratory profile of DIC? That was something I wanted to cover. You're going to be anemic, but you're going to have like elevated PT, yep. PT, so your coagulation, it's going to be, you're going to have evidence of hemolysis. So you're like, you're going to have elevated like haptoglobin or low haptoglobin. Your platelets are going to be low. You could have, you could take your factor studies. So like you would have deep depleted factors. So like factor so you're consuming. Two. Yes, you are consuming. So it's going to be, yeah, usually like I know one of the differentiators is like like, yeah, you know, y'all have the low factor two, five, seven, nine, low factor. Like, all of your factors are going to be depleted. You're going to be thrombocytopenic. Yeah. But you're also and then also, right? clinically, there should be, or sometimes, like, evidence of bleeding. So, are they if they have lines, are they oozing out of their yeah. sites? Right. So, it's going to be, like, a really acutely ill-looking patient. And what I learned was, in a new APML patient, the highest yield thing to look at is their eyes. Oh, interesting. Because they're... Even if not in a DIC like pathotype of this presentation, they can still present with like retinal hemorrhages. Interesting. So I remember we had a patient admitted for new APML and they were, it was suspected to be new APML based on like vision changes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of surprising. That's interesting. 
I wanted to circle back on tumor lysis syndrome because that's very real in hematologic malignancy, I've learned. Yes. What, you're, you gotta set this one out, Dr. Abrams. <laughs> what are the laboratory here. abnormalities we see in tumor lysis syndrome and what the heck do we do about it? So everything is up besides for calcium. Why? Because it's binding to all the phosphate that's elevated. So yeah, you have phosphate that's elevated, potassium's up, uric acid's up. Which one do you care about most? What's gonna like? I guess potassium. potassium. What are you gonna? Okay. What are you gonna do for that? Calcium glute. Yeah. So we're worried about cardiac stuff. You're gonna do your hyper K protocol. Blah blah blah. Mm -hmm. What What are you gonna call the fellow about? You're gonna wake the fellow up in the middle of the night and say, "Hey, I think this patient is tumor lysing. Should we do this?" Dialysis. I don't know. That's a step further. Okay. That's, that, that, that's the next step. Yeah. More emergent. We're gonna try something off. first. We're gonna try something first. Alopurinol is used. Alopurinol is more of a prophylactic. Okay. Not used as much. Not used anymore. Alopurinol? It's used prophylactically. We right? use it, it's used prophylactically. You're definitely fluids. giving these patients hydration. Like you got to blast them with fluids for sure. You're not consulting All right. a fellow. About Let me, I'll give you some lab values okay. now. Okay. So K comes back 5.3. FOS is 6.8. Calcium is 7.5. And the uric acid is... 11.2 or higher or plus 11.2 plus <laughs> call the fellow give him fluids you can manage it what do you think you guys can say you don't know <laughs> i think yeah, the silence I mean, speaks for itself <laughs> things aren't looking great i don't know if you want to give something to like bind the excess phosphate it's binding all the calcium so that's something i'd consider and then something to help like excrete all the uric acid is also something that Good. I would consider. But yeah, I don't know exactly like the protocol and when you're starting what. My day one, hearing this situation, I'm most worried about the potassium, like you guys mentioned. <laughs> I quickly learned that it's the uric acid we worry about. Oh, interesting. Because it precipitates in the kidney and causes a urate nephropathy really quickly. And if you get a urate above eight, you're starting to get pretty scared. If you get a urate above 11, you're calling the fellow saying, hey, should we start case right now? Okay. And that is not an order that a, a resident can put in. It is a fellow, a heme fellow only order. Why is that? I don't know, because I don't, I never got into the whys of that, but it's probably anaphylaxis. Is that the anaphylaxis one? Maybe that's something else. But in the overall grand scheme of things of managing TLS, it, you're right, it is fluids. It is allopurinol for uric or hyperuricemia prophylaxis mm -hmm. with the grand fear of being some precipitating urate event occurring in the kidneys. And there is a threshold, there's a, some criteria for hemodialysis initiation with a certain amount of urate phosphate precipitant occurring where you say, okay, it is time to do hemodialysis for TLS. So I have a couple questions for you because, yeah. because it's been years since I've probably even seen one of these patients. Although I will say this, I, yesterday at our grand rounds, there was a discussion about tumor lysis syndrome, which is why I even throw those numbers out, yeah. where, 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 which is where I heard actually the uric acid, you're right, you give sort of the low numbers, but but more classically, the uric acid is even higher in that. Oh yeah, yeah. But, but the question I have, and this may be more related to CLL okay. as opposed to AML, mm -hmm. which is, 
which is essentially leukophoresis. Okay. I was so, going to get there. So, so when, when, when do you decide, you know, so I'm starting to think of what are urgent things to yeah, do. Obviously, treat this. the potassium, hydrate the person. I love you got to give them whatever that stuff is called. It is it, a, it's a, <laughs> as they presented it to me yesterday, it's a uric acid dissolver is the way it was yeah. described to me. And, but, but then there's always this question, will you just remove the cells? And that's sort of the answer to the problem. I love this. All right. I'm going to, I'm posing this one to you specifically. <laughs> You have a new AML patient with a white blood cell count of 50,000. You have a CLL patient with a white cell count of 500,000. Who are you Luca reducing? I'd, I'm going to say this and I may be wrong. I'm going to say the person with the higher count, but that may be the wrong answer. So I've learned that that's the wrong answer. Kevin, can you explain <laughs> yeah, the yeah. audience what Luca reducing is? Yeah, I'm going to get. I'm going to explain Luca reduction. And me, so, but, but it may be more about metabolic activity of the it cell. Has to do with size. It, it, size. Size. Okay, so it's size, and, and if you have CLL, they're, they're mature cells, they're and small. so they're smaller. And so if you have if you have AML, they're Blast. these big blastic and cells, big. and they're yeah. and they're working really hard. They're leukostatic. So a high white cell count in acute leukemia is a huge red flag. Whereas in a chronic leukemia, so more mature cells, you're less so worried, especially CLL. It's not uncommon that the white count is in the millions. Mm. You leuco-reduce when you either, it's an acute leukemia and there's a high white count or you have some evidence that there's leucostasis. And that can be like altered mentation. That could it could be a non-specific finding such as that. Now to my budding interns, how do you luco reduce? What do you? There's a medication. What do you give them? Luco reduce it. <laughs> yeah, that one sounds good. He said leucophoresis. Like that's that's old, expensive. Probably, that's probably old stuff. <laughs> there's a medicine. I feel like me, I don't know when else you might have encountered it. It's hydroxyurea. Uh, yes. And it quickly just shuts things down. That does sound familiar. So it is very common, especially in new AMLs, to luco reduce them, even in like white counts of the 20s. It's just because they're blasts, they're big, they can slow things, slow flow down. Just another complication to worry about. And another reason AML sucks. <laughs> I got mixed feedback on when we would say we need to leucophorese. I don't have an, I don't have a good answer. It may be an old, you know, I'm reaching back 40 years. I think I had other specifics to talk about, like, so I, this was the immediate workup we really covered in a new acute leukemia. Then there's the overtime workup. I was like kind of separated as like the stuff that happens over the next two weeks, basically like the immunophenotyping, the cytogenetics, the bone marrow biopsy, et cetera. Basically, I've learned AML, the prognosis overall really depends on your molecular markers. It's low risk, intermediate risk, or high risk, with low risk being your, your better prognosis. A pre-chemo workup I found interesting. TTE, we give anthracyclines, Panorax of your teeth. Because I guess a lot of people have hidden dental infections and when we give them chemotherapy and they're incredibly immunosuppressed and then become septic, because really? they have hidden dental infections. You gotta consent them for blood because they're gonna get a ridiculous amount of transfusions. 
I had a fantastic case that I would love to discuss with our ethicist of a Jehovah's Witness with AML who could not get standard of care because standard of care would... She would require blood transfusions and wouldn't accept them, so they had to do a modified chemotherapy regimen and, like, work within her goals, and it worked, and she achieved remission through induction, which was kind of unexpected, to be honest, based on, like, the team's discussion of it, but it was a cool situation to navigate. Other things are, like, underlying infectious workup, like your classic viral hepatitis, G6PD, because we can get some weird... Some of the chemos have weird, like, G6PD side effects. But something I do want to cover is prophylaxis, because this is, like, the... This was the most important part. So, new AML, they just underwent a couple days of induction treatment. Are you prophylactically treating them? Break it down to your infectious buckets. Start with bacterial. What are you worried about? Gram-positives? Gram-negatives? Maybe. We obliterated their bone marrow. They have no neutrophils. Zero. So this What's thing may potentially thing? be neutropenic. There. So yeah. they are they're, they're, they're neutropenic. They got zero. worried about infection with commensal organisms and yeah. self organisms so gram negatives for sure. Gram negative coverage. Yeah. For sure. Okay. So you, you don't have you identified that. Good. Yes. You know what we give them? Cephapine. That's if they're febrile. That's neutropenic fever. Fluoroquinolone is prophylaxis. Okay. If they get a hint of a fever, you are blasting with cephapine. Okay. But but prophylaxis, we're doing like we're doing a fluoroquinolone. Leave in. Okay. Yep. Good though. So I've learned that my favorite antibiotic is actually mirapenem, but <laughs> on red. What a steward. <laughs> on the service, it's cephapine for neutropenic fever. Like that is the best gram-negative coverage for these patients. Okay, how about viral? Mm, I feel like CMV is always something you think about in patients that are immunosuppressed. Sure. Yeah, CMV, HSV, EBV, I don't know, all the things that you like have maybe been exposed to throughout your life. But What's your base rate say? In terms of what? What's the base rate of the viruses you've mentioned? I mean, basically everyone's been exposed to CMV. Yeah. EBV, a lot of people have been exposed to too. HSV, I think, a good amount of people as well. What do we need to cover with? Do we need to cover with anything? In a new acute leukemic, you we do. do. Okay. In a lymphoma patient, we're slower to add on viral prophylaxis, let's say. Okay. But in acute leukemic, we're going to definitely be prophylactically virally covering them. So what are we going to give them? All throughout acyclovir? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Acyclovir. Fungal infections? Are we worried? Are we not? I don't know if we would prophylactically cover for fungal. I know like the neutropenic fever patients that I've taken care of, it's like they've had a fever for a certain amount of days, they've been on antibiotics and it's not getting better. That's when we start to cover for fungal. Is that treatment covered or prophylactic coverage? No, it's more treatment. Yeah, most of these patients aren't on Empiric that I know of. I mean, maybe they are. I haven't had a ton of patients like this, but I don't know. I guess I would do maybe like fluconazole or something if Ooh. I wanted to do Empiric. But yeah, I'm honestly not entirely Ding, ding, sure. ding. <laughs> it had been mycofungin for a while, but fluconazole is the go-to, albeit it's oftenly changed due to its drug interactions. Okay. I've learned. 
that but yeah. like Mike is what they use in the hospital when it's like a neutropenic fever patient where they're not really sure. And then lastly, we've talked about it already, but what's our non-infectious prophylaxis? Are we, I mean, worried about like, tumor lysis syndrome more? So like allopurinol? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Scheduled allopurinol. Okay. And then in induction therapy, so it depends on AML versus ALL. AML usually a seven plus three backbone plus all these weird genetic target targeted therapy. The frequency of labs is important, I've learned. So TID, CBC, COAGs, BMP for TLS versus just dailies. Like you're in the beginning, you're gonna you're doing the TIDs, and when you can say like, hey, I think we're they're responding, they're becoming neutropenic. We're not seeing electrolyte stuff, then we can peel off the labs. Like it's very unlikely that it's TLS, mm. but it does definitely depend on disease burden. I've learned that TLS is more likely to occur in our like high burden disease lymphomas than it is our our AMLs at least. That's all I got. Any reflections? My, you know, my own reflections on this are <clears throat> are always just the terrible things that you remember. Yeah, and and I know you told me you had a terrible experience. Yeah, yeah, I did. And and I think about the terrible experiences that I had as an intern that I still remember, which was a long time ago. And my most terrible experiences were patients like were these patients. Yeah, and you, it's. You can't even imagine how quickly these patients can get sick and, yeah. and, and essentially die. I mean, literally, you know, not, not an hour, not, you know, over a day, literally over five to 10 minutes. And, yeah. and it's, it's so, it's so hard to predict and, and. You can say get labs three times a day, yeah, and that I just means that there's matter. all these other minutes that you're that you can't possibly see it. It's yeah, a great point, and it's and so it's, uh, you know, I I think about humbling moments in my in my own career, and 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 most a lot of my humbling moments. Well, I don't know, I've had so many humbling moments, but many of my humbling moments from my internship really happened during that time, and and and, and they stay with you forever. Mm -hmm. On my weekend nights, I was text. I texted Dr. Abrams after this. <laughs> this is the case he's hitting at. And on nights, like I said, I'm alone, right? Like I come in at seven, I get sign out, I get the cross cover sign out, and then I settle in. Everyone should be tucked in. I get in at seven. I got in a little earlier. I was right. I was in my workroom at seven. So I'm, I'm, everyone's gone now, and it's me. I get a page that nursing called a rapid on one of our team's patients who I was familiar with. Mm -hmm. And I go to the room, go to the bedside, and there's an incredible amount of people in the room. The patient is rigoring. They're trying to recheck vitals. His temperature is 105. He is hypertensive to 200. He is disoriented. He barely like opens his eyes in response to questioning and really takes a downward spiral quickly. So I quickly got like, I call this code stroke. 
And my reasoning wasn't that I was thinking it was a stroke. It was more of like, I think this is the quickest way to get neuro here because is he seizing was actually what I was mm -hmm. kind of concerned about. And it turned out his rigors were more just, they had like a little pattern to him and it, it didn't make sense in terms of seizure, but I got neuro there quickly. And they ended up taking the patient to the neuro ICU. And it was in the setting of him having presented with new AML and then he complained of a terrible headache and we scanned him and his ventricles were enormous. So he had leukemic involvement that were obstructing his ventricles from draining the causing obstructive hydrocephalus. So he went to neuro to get a drain placed and he came back to our service and then had a worsening headache at the end of day shift. So they said, okay, we'll scan him and see what everything looks like. So I get him when he comes back from the scan. He went down to scan normal, came back with a fever of 105. No longer alert, rigoring. Fortunately, like I was able to get neuro there quickly and they were with, accepted him without any, like sometimes getting someone to the ICU can take some like pushing people. This was a straightforward case for me in terms of like my involvement, but the days pass, it turns out he had gram positive cocci meningitis, likely in the setting of like accessing this drain that was placed. Of course, it's still ongoing and it's been extremely complicated and prognosis is not good, but he was getting like intrathecal vancomycin at one point to try to clear these cultures, but to say how quickly things change and then how quickly things change in bacterial meningitis. So someone can leave the floor for a scan and come back febrile to 105 and no longer like alert mm -hmm. was like, I didn't think that was possible. That was insane. Yeah. No, it's it, like you say, it's, it, it's incredible. And, and, and it is, it's humbling in a way that, that is just so hard to put yeah yeah what do you got to share first of all it's it's late so i'm not very <laughs> much. i guess my first of all my reflections on this is this was so nice Wonderful. i can't believe <laughs> I how, how how fortunate i am to to sit here with the three of you and and learn from you because one of the things that i that that's been so true for me over my career is is how lucky I am to learn from the students and residents and all the patients that I that I that I get to be around like like I think I said I started service now this is this is day 4 for me so I'm 4 days in and and I got a couple reflections about that. So, so let me throw them out quickly. So reflection number one is that imposter, imposter syndrome never goes away. Okay. <laughs> That's too bad. <laughs> no, I, I actually think it's a good thing. And so, and maybe it's my, and I've always been this way. Every time I go on service, I, I really do wonder whether whether I can do this and whether I'm, whether it's, you know, because, because it is a responsibility and we're responsible for the patients we take care of. Again, we're responsible for the people we work with. And, and so 
it's it is one of those things and 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 I don't think it's a bad thing okay I, I think it's it's always good and I spend a couple of days before I go on just sort of thinking about it and thinking about what I might do what I might bring to this so hmm. I, I, I I leave that for you guys the second thing I have to say is it is always great also and and a long time ago, I, I just, you know, and for the three of you here and, and, and for anybody who may be listening and for any of the people I've worked with over the years, you know, there really is, I, I guess, first of all, there really is no such thing as a, a bad or uninteresting patient. Hey, there really isn't. I promise. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's an overstatement. Maybe one of you guys can, can come up with somebody. They just said, I just can't. You know, I can barely. Now, and there's been people I, that has been really, really hard to see. But but I've always learned something from essentially every patient. I mean, I could go through my list now and and say, this is so interesting and that's so interesting. And I've never you know, you'd say, I've seen everything like this before, but I've never seen this before. I've never seen something like that before. And so that stuff always, absolutely, it, 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 it always exists. Every patient has, has something to bring to us. And, you know, and then I, the flip side of it is we're so lucky we get to do this, aren't yeah. we? Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's like the greatest thing in the world that we can sit around and we can talk about these things, okay? <laughs> because it's really, really, really interesting. It's still interesting to me after after all these after all these so many years, and uh, so I, I guess maybe I'll, you know, you want to talk about a case? I'm happy to talk about a case, but it's there's the there's the medicine part of it, which is also interesting, but the people part of it is also, I mean, if you don't. If you don't acknowledge the people part of it, then you're going to always, actually, I say you always miss, you know, we talk here about coming to the right diagnosis, but you don't come to the right diagnosis unless you put it in the context of the person that you're talking about, because, because sometimes the right answer is different depending on, depending on the person that you're, depending on the person that you're with. Uh, I, I got to. You know, I'm always afraid of, 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 you know, you know, we don't, we don't want to violate HIPAA or anything like that. Yeah. So we talk about cases and things like that. I, I got a couple of cases now that, that, that when you come to the end of them, there really are a couple of potential solutions and the solution really does depend upon the person. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've got a, I've got an older woman that, that probably more than anything else just wants to get home yeah and and there's also I, I promise there's all sorts of things we can look for in her but the reality is is that i think she just wants to get home and sometimes we get so interested yeah. in sort of that oh my god i want to know what this person has it's so interesting but but that's not the right they don't it's, care it's it's not the right solution it's not yeah. the right solution to the problem knowing that thing isn't the right answer and doing the best thing for the person is is sometimes not is sometimes not finding out the answer. Yeah. So I guess I'll leave it at that. I don't know. I don't know, Kevin. You have anything to reflect on as as an intern with this, no, this kind I of mean, thing? That deeply resonates. Like I had a patient today. It's just 
I want to save it because I actually think it's going to be a case we use. Just like a very unexpected diagnose, mm -hmm. diagnosis. And it turns out continuing the workup became less of a priority because of stuff happening at home. And it became more important to the patient and his family to actually get him home first. Mm -hmm. And I think that just kind of highlights Yeah, same thing. Perfectly. Same thing with this case I'm talking about. This was an unexpected thing and it's, boy, it's interesting. But boy, I'm not sure that it's... That's what's really, yeah. I mean, maybe interesting to me, but that's not right. That's not the right answer. Yeah. yeah. Well, this was fun, guys. <laughs> this was wonderful. Like I said, bi-weekly. Yeah. You might hear my kid crying in the background. Ignore that. Yeah. It is getting late. That means we've overstayed our welcome. Yeah, We're going to help Kevin clean up now. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for listening. This was so much fun. I hope you enjoyed our alert and disoriented get together. <laughs> I learned a lot just from... Yeah. These guys here on the stories we shared. Yeah, I, think I hope you did. guys did too. Thank you so much. We'll join us again for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Have a good night, everyone. Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. We'll see you next time.